This is Africa Digest. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. We are broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on 9625 kilohertz. That's on the 31 meter band if you are in Southern Africa. My name is Spumelele Zondi. I'm with Onelenzinti Uisane Matebula and Mosibudi Makura. Your top stories. Political parties debate the South African President's State of the Nation address. Zimbabwean opposition leader Mokin Changrai fondly remembered. In economics, Glencore and Rangold Resources are among major mining companies in the DRC clubbing together in a bid to stop sweeping legal reforms. And in sports, South Africa's under-17 women's football team arrives back home after qualifying for the FIFA under-17 Women's World Cup. Onelenzinzi has your news. Thank you, Spoo. Nearly 17 people were killed when a rubbish mound collapsed in a poor district of Mozambique's capital, Maputo, crushing several nearby homes. Torrential rain is thought to have caused the loose waste to shift and crash down on the shacks, trapping the occupants who were sleeping at the time of the incident on Sunday night. Mozambique's emergency services warned there could be more victims trapped under the vast waste pile, which is located in the Hulene district in the capital. Heavy rain has been falling on Maputo since Sunday. Sunday, causing damaging homes and deluging roads and schools. Long-awaited talks between Togo's government and the opposition have begun to try to end a six-month political standoff that has seen thousands take to the streets in almost weekly protests against the ruling party. President Farag Nassimbe, who has been in power since 2005, has faced calls to quit and investigate constitutional reform since last August. After stalemate, the two sides agreed to meet in talks brokered by Ghana's President Nana Akufo-Addo and Guinea's Alpha Conde. The talks are expected expected to last 10 days and discuss a range of issues, including the reintroduction of the 1992 constitution that placed a limit of two on presidential mandates. Authorities in India say it could take more than six months to allow for the extradition of fugitive A.J. Gupta back to South Africa. Reports in India media claim that A.J. and Atul Gupta were seen in various Indian cities over the last few days. They traveled to their hometown in the state of Uttar Pradesh. A.J. has reportedly left the region by helicopter and his current location is unclear. The Indian government says as soon as they hear from South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa, they will begin the exchange process immediately. News correspondent in India, Neha Poinia. While Ajay Gupta has been declared a fugitive in South Africa, in India he continues to enjoy tremendous clout and various privileges. The Gupta family enjoys Z category security here. This is the highest security that a private individual can be provided for by the state. When Ajay Gupta landed in Uttarakhand, a convoy of police personnel reportedly escorted him to and from his place of stay. The police in the state say the level of security for the Guptas is the norm and has been in place for many years now. India and South Africa do have an extradition treaty for the exchange of criminals and the South African government says it will be preparing legal assistance documents for its counterparts in India this week. 
The Nigerian High Commission in South Africa has warned its citizens who are involved in acts of crime in the country that the law should take its course. This follows a series of attacks by the public on Nigerian nationals, accusing them of drug peddling and human trafficking. Consulate General for the Nigerian High Commission in South Africa, Godwin Adama, says this, uh, said this on the sidelines of the court appearance of 14 Nigerian nationals. And we will discourage it wherever we find it. At the same time, we believe that when a Nigerian is involved in any form of crime, it should be the same process that is going on now. Should be arrested, tried within the process of the law. If that is done, we don't have any problem. And lastly, Turkey has warned the Syrian government against helping Kurdish fighters after reports that pro-government militias would shortly enter the Kurdish-held area of Afrin in northern Syria. The Turkish Foreign Ministry says no one could stop Turkish soldiers who launched an offensive backed by Allied fighters on Afrin last month. Syria state media says pro-government forces are to move into Afrin as part of a deal with Kurds. The BBC Sebastian Ashes. The Kurds are a pretty strong force. They've been backed by the US, have been very important in the battle against the Islamic State group, for example. So they're no pushover, but they probably aren't a match for the combined might of the Turkish army and the other forces with them. So this is a new development in that battle with the Syrian government, not its own troops again, but its forces, I think this would be the National Defence Force, which is essentially a semi-official militia, which has been doing most of the fighting on the ground, on the government's behalf for a long time now. Channel African News, I am on Elintzinsi. Thank you very much, Onele. Remember to tweet us on Channel Africa One. That is Channel Africa One on Twitter. You can also send us your emails on info at channelafrica.co.za. Now, most political parties in South Africa's parliament have lauded President Cyril Ramaphosa's State of the Nation address, saying it gave South Africans renewed hope. However... They were quick to warn Ramaphosa that his statement of intent will ring hollow if he does not crack down on corruption and reduce the bloated cabinet he's inherited from former President Jacob Zuma. Lula Mamagia reports. ANC chief Fuepu Jackson Mtembo was the first to take to the podium. Mtembo said parliament should never be found wanting again by the constitutional court. He called for ethical leadership that respects the rule of law. The leadership we are calling for must be one of a principled nature across political parties, where ethics and integrity are the dominant factor and not narrow party politics. As parliament, we must not and cannot ever be found on the side of having done wrongdoing under our watch. We as public representatives, we carry the hopes and aspirations of the people who elected us into office. We dare not fail them. DA leader Musi Maimane reaffirmed his party's support for the newly elected president and took a jab at former president Jacob Zuma. We are presented with a unique window of opportunity. We have removed a corrupt broken president from office. Our task now is to fix the broken country he has left behind. (laughs) President Ramaphosa 
has promised the people of South Africa a new dawn. I really believe that this is what he wants for South Africa. It is certainly what we want for South Africa. And I want to pledge my support and the support of our party towards the realization of this goal. EFF leader Julius Malema also followed suit and reassured Ramaphosa of his party support. That we are willing to give you a chance as a president of the Republic of South Africa, as head of state and government. We only give you a chance because you have not been personally found guilty of being a constitutional delinquent. Because we do not entertain delinquents. We deal with delinquents decisively, like we did before. It is very easy for a country to degenerate if you allow individuals to become constitutional delinquents. However, other opposition parties called on President Ramaphosa to deal with the issue of racism. NFP Chief Kubisa. This calls for the need to deal with the pockets and remnants of racism that show their ugly heads in certain corners in our country. We must collectively cultivate the spirit of social cohesion in our republic. The UDM leader Bandwolo Misa wants Ramaphosa to crack down on corruption and sack ministers implicated in state capture. And Mr. President, there must be consequences for those who have been found guilty of corruption. The state capture inquiry must be beefed up with the inclusion of forensic audit experts and even the hawks. The Justice Department must be directed to make special provision for prosecuting capacity and the establishment of dedicated courts to expedite justice as was done in 2010 during the World Cup. The Freedom Front Plus has also promised to cooperate with President Ramaphosa to build South Africa. Party leader Peter Grunewald elaborates. I want to say I am an Afrikaner and a son of the soil of Africa. Afrikaners and white people want to contribute to a better future for all in South Africa. We can help to build a better South Africa, but then we need to have mutual respect for each other. However, it was the motive issue of expropriation of land without compensation, which seemed to tear parties apart along ideological lines. Maimane argued that this issue is incompatible with a growing economy. Expropriation of land without compensation is incompatible with a growing, flourishing economy. You can have one or the other, but you can't have both. In fact, this is what our neighbors in Zimbabwe started to, put, to pursue to such disastrous effect in the past Malema, who has been championing expropriation of land without compensation, warned the DA that if they don't change their stance on the issue, they risk losing the metros they co-govern with the help of the EFF. I want to warn him, the leader of the opposition, 
that your stay in the metros is going to depend on your attitude on the expropriation of land without compensation. And I want to warn you about that. For that's a fundamental issue which is going to make us fight with you. Because anyone opposed to expropriation of land without compensation is the enemy of our people and such a person will be dealt with. IFP leader Mangosutu Butelezi also cautioned against the use of expropriation of land of black people under the Ingonyama Trust. Does the ruling party sincerely believe that bureaucracy and plush offices can administer traditional land better than those who have been the custodians of our people's lives, dignity and well-being since the time immemorial? Surely the policy of land expropriation without compensation, which necessitates the amendment of our constitution, should not be used against the poorest of the poor. When the ANC first spoke about expropriation without compensation, Amakosi never expected that the first land to be taken would be the very land that we place in the hands of the people. In another development, Economic Development Minister Ibrahim Patel announced the, during the debate that Old Mutual is considering coming back to the country and have its headquarters in Johannesburg. Five weeks ago, the competition authorities approved a transaction that will see Old Mutual reversing its decision of 20 years ago to make London its global headquarters and subject to a shareholder approval, they will come back home, use the JSE for its primary stock exchange listing, make Joburg the global headquarters of its biggest businesses. The report was compiled by Lula Mamadia. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress. To the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. You help and party. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholihlahla Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. Well, thank you very much for staying with Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, where we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Now, the South African Chamber of Mines has agreed jointly with the Department of Mineral Resources to postpone in court application in the in respect of the reviewed mining charter that was due to be heard in the High Court. This follows the State of the Nation address by President Cyril Ramaphosa and subsequent engagement with the presidency, which has 
indicated that the new president is committed to resolving the impasse over the mining charter and to facilitate a process of developing a new charter inclusive of all stakeholders and in the interests of the industry and the country as a whole. For more on the postponement of the court case, Channel Africa's Kumbero Manjarara spoke to Dibello Chabana, spokesperson of the South African Chamber of Mines. I think firstly, you know, we've got a more willing counterpart in terms of the engagement. I think, you know, the president has, uh, in the State of the Nation address stated that he wants a new mining charter. So I think he certainly recognizes that the, the current one that was uh, published in uh, June of 2017 is not going to take the industry or the country forward. And that, you know, he also said that he wants to initiate a negotiation process where you've got various parties around the table. So again, the differences between... Uh, uh, the DMR consulting and just essentially uh, unilaterally implementing a charter visa versus um, us actually negotiating a charter relating sure. to the industry, but amongst including other stakeholders such as, yes, the government department, labor and communities. Yes, I think we're very confident that we can do it. I mean, and the work is really about to start. I mean, it's going to be certainly quite a challenge to get all the parties to agree. But, you know, if you get some, if you get the parties to agree to something at least we can then defend it. It won't be perfect, but it is something that we would have agreed to and we can defend. Now, what are some of the issues that you are still having a problem with on this revised charter, Mr. Chabana? There were quite a few. There were many instances or problems that we had with this charter. Sure. I mean, it was uh, firstly how it was came it came about, as we've spoken about the procedure. But primarily, though, there were the substantive issues in that this charter was seriously flawed. It was essentially designed to benefit a few individuals. That's what that's what it was essentially designed to do. And it was going to really take us backwards in transformation. Now, the industry is not against transformation. We would not have minded a, a charter that would have progressed their transformation journey, that would have set some new or stretched targets, that's fine. But something that would have taken us backward, we certainly were not in agreement. I mean, the the, the example I use, which is for me, um, something that we just could not live with was the proposal that that the minister was making that he wanted to take away 40% of the skills money um, and and take it away. So instead of us spending that money for upskilling our employees, it was going to go into some fund that he controlled. Now, when we wanted to get the the details relating to the objective of this fund, how it's going to be run and the governance, nothing. Not even a one-pager did we get. Uh, over a fund that's going to take away two billion odd rands of money that's meant to be meant for employees. What makes it worse, furthermore, is that there uh, already has a CETA, uh, the Mining Qualifications Authority, where um, essentially all stakeholders sit and, uh, in terms of the, the governance structure. Uh-huh. But it is run, it is, it is chaired by the DMR. So if you are saying that your CETA is not working properly, well, rather fix the CETA instead of setting up that other bureaucracy with no rules, no guidelines that's going to be taking this money from skills. The court case has now been postponed. Um, have all applicants in the court case been formally engaged about this agreement, Mr. Chabana? I believe so. Um, so now, initially, it was by agreement between uh, the, us as the applicants and the respondent, the DMR, but now uh, the court has essentially handed down the the order, I mean, the order is such that um, this matter is postponed and that the, those parties that were party to it, I mean, the co-applicants, 
are, are deemed to be essentially interested and affected parties, so they must be uh, consulted on. So it is certainly now um, a done deal, I believe. That is Dibello Chabana, spokesperson of the South African Chamber of Mines, talking to Kumbero Munjarere. The Zimbabwean government and opposition parties have described the late movement for democratic change MDC president Morgan Changarai as a national hero. Changarai, who died of colon cancer at the age of 65 in a South African hospital last week, was the first man to show courage and stand up against the tyranny orchestrated by former president Robert Mugabe. Changarai received some military honor and his body was taken to a military morgue, a sign that government was recognizing the role he played both as prime minister and opposition leader. Someone Machema reports from Harare. For the first time in the history of Zimbabwe, Zimbabweans have united to mourn the former premier Morgan Changrai regardless of their political divide. When news of his death arrived Wednesday evening from South Africa, Zimbabweans were touched and gave their backs on everything in their lives to unite in the morning of a great leader. Changrai was indeed popular for his courage, purpose and strength in his fight for democracy in Zimbabwe and even President Emerson Mnangagwa admitted during a memorial service held Sunday. This hour of morning, let us all be united. Let us all be brothers and sisters and come together and mourn our former Prime Minister. And with that spirit, let us move forward as a people and united for the development of our country. Former Vice President Joyce Mujuru, who also suffered in the hands of Robert Mugabe, commended Changrai's bravery. His death is a great loss to the opposition, she said. Yes, yes especially for opposition parties. That's very a big, big loss. The dedication freedom of the less privileged and we know he has actually done it physically he didn't delegate anything so we have a lot to learn from him mark henry venani a namibian politician and the president of the popular democratic movement described changrai as a regional hero who fought for regional electoral reforms we have lost a great lion we have a great lost a lion that brought through Africa to bring democratization. Today all Zimbabweans, ZANU-PF or any other political divide are talking about a free and fair election. It was Tsvangirai that taught Zimbabweans of a free and fair election. It was Tsvangirai who taught the people of Zimbabwe that there is a need to revive your economy. It was Tsvangirai who wanted to bring jobs to the people. That was the leader that we are mourning today. While Changrai's funeral was taking place, allegations of divisions in the opposition MDC took center stage with some family members taking sides. But Changrai's son, Morgan Richard Changrai Jr., endorsed Nelson Chamisa as MDC acting president. MDC vice presidents, 
Chamisa Elias Mudzuri and Tokozani Kupe were reported as fighting for control of the party ahead of Changrai's death, which Zimbabweans felt would destabilize the unity Changrai fought for. Meanwhile, several church services were held over the weekend in honor of the late opposition, but Bishop Anselmo Magaya called for MDC leaders to unite and President Mnangagwa to repent. Zimbabweans, as we remember the legacy that Dr. Richard Changrai left, let us be selfless in our approach to the politics of the day. We want leaders, not rulers. Hallelujah. Let us be selfless and put aside our egos, put aside our self-serving interests, put aside our personal pursuits. Mr. Munangagwa, we hold you accountable. You were the vice president. You were the minister of justice. I hold you accountable. Repent or perish. The body of the late Mogen Changrai will be laid to rest on Tuesday afternoon at his home in Buhera, 219 kilometers southeast of the capital. In Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. During his visits to Warton, Libya, President Peter Maur of the International Committee of the Red Cross, or ICRC, highlighted that the country is amongst those with the largest percentage of displaced people, and therefore the humanitarian needs are important. Mora added that although Libya has fallen out of headlines and been replaced by conflicts in Syria and Yemen, it is still plagued by fighting and a humanitarian crisis. The ICRC chief was in that country last week. General Botad reports. The International Committee of the Red Cross ICRC says Libya is facing a triangle of tragedy, urban violence, vast displacement and perilous migration. This following ICRC President Peter Mora's three-day visit to troubled Libya last week, where he got to witness firsthand the dire humanitarian situation as the country enters its eighth year of conflict. The ICRC has recently scaled up its operations in Libya, which has been engulfed in economic chaos, general lawlessness and armed groups vying for power since the revolution in 2011. The threat of ongoing conflict prevents many from returning to their homes and as a result Libya suffers from one of the highest per capita displacement levels in Africa. After visiting Tripoli, Tobruk and Benghazi to assess the humanitarian situation and speak with high-level Libyan authorities, the ICRC chief remarked that it's hard to fathom how many people are affected by conflict in Libya. He added that urban violence and vast displacement have been an everyday reality for Libyans, while migrants desperate to reach Europe are often trapped and abused there. The ICRC has been in Libya uninterruptedly since 2011, working side by side with the Libyan Red Crescent to the benefit of all Libyans throughout the country in a strictly neutral and impartial way. Red Crescent volunteers often work day and night despite the dangers and challenges to alleviate the suffering of those in need. 
This year, the organization plans to increase its emergency assistance to those affected by conflict, including distributions of food and essential household items and putting separated families back in touch, in particular for detained migrants. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabutata in Johannesburg. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Attention to our listeners. From the 30th of October 2017, the first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700-hours show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700-hours Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa, giving you an African perspective. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Now, eight months have passed since South Africa's National Department of Basic Education released a policy committing to providing high school learners with comprehensive sexual education and direct health services at schools. Yet, no practical guidelines on its implementation have been provided. The concern is raised by Doctors Without Borders. The Global Medical Aid Agency says a failure by the Department of Basic Education to provide guidance on how to implement the policy poses health risks for learners. Reflecting more on the national policy on HIV, STIs and TB is MSF's Musan Lufu. It gives some kind of a guide and it will guide to the strategy in terms of the required realization of a systematic and sustained response to HIV and TB and ensure that it is the business of everyone in the sector to prevent disease and promote health and well-being of learners and educators, officials in all schools. Now, MSF is concerned that the guidelines to how this policy must be implemented have been delayed. It's been eight months now. Yes, for sure. In fact, you know, the policy can be so cute in a way that we can be tempted to do some of the things. But without a proper 
implementation plan that is developed. You may find that uh, the interpretation to the policy varies according to where the individual is. So that delay of eight months is affecting the implementation because we as MSF may have our own interpretation and the other organizations as well can interpret in different ways. So the framework that it's supposed to be providing now becomes invalid. And what do you think is behind this delay in terms of providing a guideline for the implementation of this policy? I think uh, the main reason why there is this delay is on the Department of Basic Education communication processes because as it is a national uh, guideline, it needs to be cascaded to the provinces as well as the districts so that uh, the implementation plan can be crafted, which will talk to the situation in different schools. But by the look of things, when you talk with some officials coming from the basic education department, you'll find that they are not orientated on the policy. Now, Musamin, while there's no proper implementation plan of this policy, how are learners being affected? Since the main objective of the policy is to reduce the infections in schools and also provide some form of education, sexuality and reproductive health education to the learner. You cannot properly do that if there is no proper guidance. And also, we as the organizations that are supporting in the implementation of uh, the program, we tend to have a different understanding of what the policy says. And, you know, that kind of conflict in terms of the understanding of the policy is the one that is causing a setback because you cannot push and implement when they have a different understanding. Take, for instance, if we talk about the provision of HIV counseling and testing as well as availability of condoms, the understanding is not the same. Before the policy, we were able to provide HIV counseling and testing in school, and it has been working very well. Now there is a feeling that HIV counseling and testing, yes, should be provided, but outside the school premises. The question is, if it's outside the school premises, are we going to be able, as the service providers, to reach the number of learners who want to utilize the service? Number two, outside the premises, how can you protect the service so that it could be provided to the learners only without an interference of the outside people? Those are the key questions which need to be answered. In terms of condoms. I'm glad you touched on the issue of condoms because it has been a very contentious issue. What's final with regards to condoms? Are they going to be provided at schools or not? And bearing in mind that some learners are said to be not comfortable with the idea of condoms being provided at school. I cannot be able to point out at this point in time what's going to be final. But what we've done during this sexual and reproductive health month, we engaged learners where we were trying to get their views in terms of how do they speak the services being provided, how do they see the condom being available at school? Because if it says available, but it doesn't talk to the access, how accessible as they are available? They can be available in a certain office where learners fear to go and ask for those condoms, as well as the term discreet, where they say the condoms could be made available, but very discreet. As the organization MSF will say, if the condoms are in the containers, the containers, that is discreet. And only to find that uh, the department will have a different meaning of discreet. So without us sitting down and unpacking the police, we cannot be able to have a very uh, workable, progressive implementation plan that talks to the people who need to access the service. Musa, from an MSF point of view, from your experience as an organization, what's the general attitude of learners towards the provision of condoms at school? We get the mixed feeling among the learners, but 
I must say that uh, the higher percentage of learners feels that if it is about uh, prevention, every means of prevention should be made available and accessible. Finally, just to conclude our conversation, what's the final word from MSF um, with regards to the implementation of this policy? What exactly are you calling for? As MSF, we say, let the policy be communicated to all the relevant levels. Let it be unpacked for everyone to understand. And we are looking forward to see the services like we do with the education that we provide in the school premises. Even the testing, we want to see it being provided in the school premises so that we can be sure that when we talk about the confidentiality, we are able to maintain that confidentiality because we are within uh, the setting that allows us to apply the confidentiality. More and above that, in terms of uh, the availability and accessibility of condoms, we would appreciate as MSF to have the condoms in the school premises, in the toilet, kept in the containers, or in a learner support agent's office, the one person whom the learners interact easily with, so that every time when they need the condoms, they will access the condom. Not to need the condoms, but being unable to access them. That is Musa Ndlovu from Doctors Without Borders in South Africa there. In conversation with my colleague, Jane Rabotata. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. You are still listening to Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. We are broadcasting to you from our headquarters at the SABC in Auckland Park in South Africa. Now, following Friday's State of the Nation address in South Africa, various sectors have welcomed President Cyril Ramaphosa's speech. Spokesperson for the Congress of South African Trade Union, Cesar Pamela, joins us on the line to share the Federation's thoughts. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Uh, good evening to you and your listeners. Um, what do you think of President Ramaphosa's uh, speech? It's um, uh, widely um, welcomed by many people. Indeed, we also welcome uh, the, the statement by President Ramaphosa. We we are happy. <coughs> sorry, we are happy to to see that he's been listening uh, to, to us. We've been calling for a job summit for quite some time, uh, since 2016, in fact. And uh, he agreed uh, to it. And, and now we're going to have a job summit, an investment summit. And and, and, and this is what we need to really kickstart the economy uh, because uh, we cannot afford uh, to continue fighting with social partners. Uh, if we continue to fight, we're going to prolong this uh, uh, economic crisis. So we are happy with that. And also, if you look at some of the programs and proposals that came out of uh, uh, putting 2 million people, uh, adding 2 million people on ARP, uh, having a, a, a campaign to test uh, people of, of cancer, uh, it, it, this is going to go a long way in trying to turn around our health system uh, because we, we have a very high disease burden. And our charity health system uh, 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 it takes a lot of, of our budget, 
uh, we need to encourage people to live healthy and to take care of themselves uh, and, and, and also turn around our healthcare system to, to primary healthcare. So there are some very, very progressive proposals. Of course, the issue of fighting corruption is very central and uh, turning around those SOEs uh, is it, it, very important. But having said that, uh, we are now waiting to see from the president whether he's going to put together a capable team uh, that will help him to deliver on these promises. Mm. Um, and the South African economy hasn't really um, been growing at the rate a lot of uh, people feel it should be growing. And in fact, last year, South Africa did get into a recession at some point. Um, what do you think needs to be done in order to resuscitate it and bring it back to life? Well, look, uh, <coughs> the president has already started uh, really engaging with the investors because what we have seen uh, over the last couple of years is that there's been an investment spike, uh, not just uh, investors from outside South Africa, but uh, if, you, if you go and look at the, the reports that were coming out from the Reserve Bank, uh, we saw reports telling us that uh, actually uh, businesses in South Africa are sitting on uh, cash uh, 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 of 1.4 trillion rand in cash, and they are not investing in the economy. If you go back, in fact, I think it was the BLSA also that confirmed that uh, sometime last year to say we have 600 billion rand that we would, uh, we would like to invest but we are not going to invest uh, while we are uh, dealing with this uncertainty uh, that we were confronted with uh, the country. So, firstly, we need to, to, to assure uh, investors that they, they can invest their money into in, in, in our economy. Secondly, we have long argued that um, for South Africa to go forward, we need to, 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 to put much more effort in promoting small businesses uh, and, and, and make sure that uh, we have an infrastructure that is, is available for them uh, to try. As uh, we, we still believe that government is not going to succeed in, in pursuing its developmental agenda if it is still reliant on uh, commercial banks. Uh, we, we still believe that for these small businesses uh, to try, a government needs to do everything, use the budget itself, but also give them all the necessary support because it is these small businesses that are going to help us to create jobs. What we have seen in 2006 was that we had an economy that was growing, I think at some point it was growing by 4%, but it wasn't creating jobs. And we can't afford that. We need an economy that is going to absorb the army of unemployed. Mm. Um, and there's the issue that you as Corsato raised um, before uh, that uh, Sona uh, delivery by the president. You spoke about what you term a bloated cabinet and you say it must be cut in half. Why is this important to you? Well, look, it is important because uh, uh, firstly, we, 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 we appreciate that we are going to have an austerity budget uh, looking at the state of our economy. Now, if we are going to have an austerity budget, government needs to, to, to lead from the front. Uh, secondly, um, really adding departments has not improved government efficiency. Uh, what we have seen is, 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 is more money being spent 
on really maintaining this portrait cabinet without any benefit really for the workers and the people on the ground. So our view is that we do not need uh, all of these uh, government departments. In fact, because there's a lot of duplication, uh, if you look at the economic cluster, for example, uh, you have so many departments that uh, you realize that actually they are not even talking to each other. Uh, most of these departments uh, uh, should be working together instead of operating in silos. So we think an economic cluster needs to be reconfigured. Uh, so some of these departments, uh, to have land reform and agriculture a standalone department, it doesn't make sense because land reform and agriculture are, are, are intertwined. So we really do, do believe strongly that reducing the size of the cabinet will actually help us uh, to improve mm. the efficiency of the state. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Sister Pamela, there is the spokesperson at COSATU, that is the Congress of South African Trade Unions. It is now time for your economics. Here is Usaini Matebula. Good evening. Uh, thanks, as Pumelele. Lenko and Ren Gold Resources among major mining companies in the Democratic Republic of Congo clubbing together in a bid to stop sweeping legal reforms. They claim their interests were poorly served by the existing industry body. In a letter sent to Congolese President Joseph Kabila, investors requested meeting to put forward their positions about changes to the mining code approved by lawmakers last month. Sihlezuma has more. The new code will overhaul Congo's most important economic sector if Kabila signs it, raising the cost of doing business for investors in Africa's biggest copper producer while boosting the state share of mining revenue. Investors want the newly created body to replace the Chamber of Mines, which is part of Congo's main private sector lobby group. China Moli Ivanhoe Mines and Anglo Gold Ashanti also signed the letter. In December, companies including Glencore, Ren Gold and China China Moli said they would defend their investment. See for Channel Africa. And South Africa's domestic flights were affected by a bomb scare at O.R. Tambo International Airport. The area around the International Arrivals Hall was evacuated after unattended luggage was found. Sniffer dogs were called and the area was evacuated. The contents have been sent for further forensic eva- evaluation. Sam Porcelet arrived on a domestic flight from Cape Town, she says they experienced a 45-minute delay, most of it spent waiting for their luggage in the baggage hall. And after about 10 minutes of the same bags going round and round and round, uh, some of the other passengers and I started looking around and noticing that no other passengers were being let into the baggage area. And we had to all wait for about 35 minutes with no communication whatsoever. Um, Most of us started Googling, a small group of us, and we picked up some of the live tweets and some Facebook messages from people that had been there, and we found out that there was a bomb scare. Delegates from the four countries that are members of the East Three Route are gathered in Mbombela, Mpumalanga in South Africa to discuss measures to improve the tourism industry. East Three Route involves Mozambique, Swaziland, 
Seychelles and South Africa. The four countries share best tourism practices. Researchers attending the seminar say most countries tend to prioritize inbound tourism than domestic tourism. Researchers from Euromonitor, Christy Tawi. For example, the travel advisories that happened in Kenya, you know, when they had no inbound um, tourists coming in, so the numbers were low. But for countries in South Africa that had a, a domestic strategy, they actually managed to, 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 to float and maintain positive numbers. So we're slowly moving through towards a, um, a good direction, but yes, um, it's a growth region. South Africa's public prosecutions body, the National Prosecuting Authority, has confirmed that Atul Gupta is challenging the freezing of almost a million US dollars allegedly paid into his account in connection with the Estina Dairy Farm project in Frede in the Free State Province. Orisan is tall as more. They've received papers from the Guptas about the 10 million rand that was allegedly paid into the account, but then they have refused to say much because they say they were tested on the court. But all we know is that the papers were filed in Bloemfontein at the Bloemfontein High Court. Kibitech Bank Holding CEO Harry Foray says her business is back to normal at the lender. This comes after weeks that the bank became the target of short seller Viceroy that also contributed to the scandal surrounding Steinhoff. Despite some initial uncertainty and customer withdrawals, Kibitech is signing between six and 8,000 customers per day for February. It expects to have about 9.8 million customers by the end of its fiscal year. While the bank's shares have paid losses uh, since a January 30 report by Viceroy Research accusing it of uh, concealing loan uh, losses and underestimating bad debts, they're still down 10%. Financial indicators now, the US dollar trading at 11.6, South African rands at 9.3, Botswana Pula 9.83, Zambian Kwacha also trading at 71 pence to the British pound and 80 cents against the euro. Commodities gold at $1,349. Platinum $1,007 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil at $65.33 per barrel. And that's your economics news right now. Thank you very much, Wasani. It is now time for sports news. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news, the South African women under-17 national team received a great welcome this morning at the South African Football Association offices after qualifying for the FIFA World Cup in Uruguay over the weekend. Now, Bantuana beat Morocco 1-0 away in the second leg in the final qualifying round on Saturday. The team also beat the North Africans 5-1 in the first leg at home, thus winning 6-1 on aggregate. SAFA President Dr. Danny Jordan is proud of the team. I just want to say congratulations to the team. Um, It's the second time we have an under-17 women's team going to the World Cup. The under-17 women's team went in 2010 to Trinidad and Tobago to the World Cup and now it is the second team that South Africa will be sending to the under-17 women's World Cup. Uh, And this follows on qualifications for the under-17 uh, boys' World Cup 
the under 17 Girls World Cup now, the Olympics qualification and the under 20 uh, Men's World Cup. So in this period we've seen qualifications for virtually each and every one of our junior teams. Well, this is the second time Bantwana have qualified for the World Cup. They also made it in Trinidad and Tobago back in 2010, but they could not progress beyond the group stages. Coach Simpiwe Lulu is simply happy to have qualified for the World Showpiece. Firstly, I'd like to thank everybody that made it today. Gift of life is what we are thankful for. And most importantly, I think the show should be there because those are the men of the matches, Disky Queens, if I may put it that way, because without them we wouldn't really be sitting here and having this field of a day. And ladies, I think I personally need to clap hands for you alone because I know what it means for you sitting there. Well done. Well, the sixth edition of the Under-17 Women's World Cup takes place from the 13th of November and concludes on the 1st of December. So on football news, Kenya's men's national team head coach Paul Putt is scouting for fresh team um, of assistants, having made a request to the Football Kenyan Federation to allow him to pick his own technical bench as Kenya gears up for the upcoming AFCON 2019 qualifiers. Additionally, Putt asked the federation to arrange for more international friendlies and for Kenyans to support the national team more. The national football team is set to face the Black Stars of Ghana in an AFCON 2019 qualifier in September and coach Paul Putt has uh, set up his sights on professional level preparations starting with changes in the technical bench. To make sure that everything is professional and that's uh, my experience that I will bring on board and uh, I think for the other people they don't have to take it uh, that they are not good enough. No, it's just uh, that they are working on a certain level. If you want to try to qualify for AFCON, uh, you cannot make mistakes. Well, Harambe Stars had a false start to their qualification journey for the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations tournament with a 2-1 loss away to Sierra Leone to ensure that Kenya is ready for the continental football powerhouse. Put has asked the federation to avail friendlies for his team. We are working uh, to get uh, or to try to play two games in March uh, on the FIFA date. So normally uh, we have a confirmation uh, to play Como. I am looking uh, for a second game. It could be uh, Burkina Faso, it could be Mali, it could be uh, uh, Niger. And finally, Julius Yego made history in Drac in 2015 when he became the first Kenyan to win a world title in the men's javelin throw. Kenyans are simply not renowned for their experience in the field events, but rather the middle and long distance events. To prove this was no fluke, Yego followed that up with a silver medal at the 2016 Rio Olympic Games. Injury laid him low for 2017, but now he is healthy and back and uh, will open his 2018 season at the third Athletics Grand Prix meeting in Paul in the Western Cape province in South Africa on the 22nd of March, an event he's thoroughly looking forward to. When my manager told me about the meeting and, and I, I was so ready to come to compete in South Africa, you know, I look forward to competing there. And it's it's a nice thing, you know. Like Africa, we produce the best athletes, but uh, we rarely or hardly have uh, like our own competitions. I love to be in South Africa. We love Africa and 
I want to compete there. I will be always ready when my body is okay. I'm going to compete there. For the Zaya Sports News at the Sawa, stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Right, let's recap our top stories. Political parties debate the South African President's State of the Nation address. Zimbabwean opposition leader Mokin Changrai fondly remembered. And that wraps up Africa Digest for today. From myself as Pumele Lezondi producer, Luanda Maome and the rest of the team, thank you very much for listening. Send us emails. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also tweet us. That is Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. You can also SMS us if you want. Our number is plus 27 Plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. Until next time, goodbye.